From time to time, when I lived in Ukraine, something would come up, and I would need to make the three-hour trip to Zaporizhia, the main city in our region. And often, Sergei, the pastor of the church that we partnered with, would go with me, and we would go either on personal or church business, maybe renewing our fam family's temporary residency, picking up medical supplies or humanitarian aid, or attending meetings or conferences. Without fail, once our business was done, we'd hop in the van, and Sergey would look at me and say, hey, you want to go to McDonald's? Heather and I moved to Ukraine in September of 1999, and this particular McDonald's opened three months later on Christmas Eve. And just so you know, the McDonald's in Zaporizhia is better than the one in Palmetto. <laughs> Sergey loved McDonald's. I would have preferred Ukrainian food, but I couldn't tell Sergey no. So even though McDonald's was on the far side of town and we lived three hours southeast, we always made the trek to McDonald's. And another of Sergey's quirks was that we had to eat the same thing. If he got a Big Mac menu, he wanted me to eat a Big Mac menu. And if, and if I opted for the, the McTasty meal, his food just didn't taste good. And I gotta be honest, sometimes it felt like we were on a date. <laughs> One time, somewhere in the middle of our time in Ukraine, Sergey and I had gotten our food and we went upstairs to look for a table. As we were eating and chatting, Sergey nudged me and said, hey, those folks behind you are Americans. They're speaking English. Turn around and talk to them. Find out why they're here. Um, and then just a quick aside, if you ever find yourself in a foreign country and you long for the companionship of other Americans, head to the nearest McDonald's walk around the dining area. If you don't find an American immediately, just wait a couple of minutes. They're probably just washing their hands in the restroom. But back to me and Sergey, those guys behind you are speaking English. Turn around and talk to them. To which I promptly said, no. He said, but why not? They're your fellow countrymen. Don't you want to find out why they're here? And I was like, no thanks, I'm good. But Jonathan, why? I said, Sergey, you see Americans. I see, <clears throat> excuse me, I see potential problems. I'd seen too many well-meaning American Christians cause so many problems in Ukrainian churches, sometimes even, even leading to church splits. And all I could think was, keep these guys as far away from me and the churches that I work with. One of our first trips to Zaporizhia with Sergei, Heather and I met with the head of the churches in the Zaporizhia region. His name was Pavel Petrovich Mitlenka. If he sounds intimidating, he was. Heather and I had just moved to Beardyans to start working with Sergei in the church, and Sergei thought it would be a good idea to meet with Mitlenka to sort of get his blessing. Mitlenka was not excited to see Heather and me. When he looked at us, he didn't see Americans or Christians. What did he see? Potential problems. When missionaries caused problems or splits in churches and then moved on or went back to America, who had to go in and clean up? Pavel Petrovich Mitlenka. And he advised Sergei right in front of Heather and I not to work with us. But thankfully, Sergei did. And 20 years later, in 2020, right before COVID hit, I remember meeting Mitlenka once more at a different McDonald's. We now had two McDonald's in Zaporizhia. And he was meeting with us so that he could personally hand us a letter of invitation so that we could continue to stay in Ukraine. Uh, but sadly, uh, Pavel Petrovich passed away to COVID later that year. Today's passage involves a guy who had lost everything. 
He had lost his humanity, his community, and his sanity. When people looked at him, they no longer saw a person, but instead they saw a hopeless problem that needed to be managed and kept as far away as possible. And so we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Before we dive into the text, I want to mention that this story is also found in Matthew and in Luke. And Matthew tells us that there were actually two demon-possessed men living among the tombs, while Mark and Luke just focus solely on the spokesperson of the two. As we have been looking at the good news according to Mark, our running theme over the past few weeks has personally been very inspiring to me. One day or day one. Is this change that I know needs to happen in my life going to possibly, hopefully happen one day in the future? Or is today day one of that course correction? In today's passage, Jesus met a man in whom all hope was lost. Not only did he not have any hope, No one else had any hopes for him either. No one thought, maybe one day he'll get better. No one said, maybe one day he'll be able to come back to the village or come back home. No one entertained the idea, that the possibility that maybe one day he might not be dangerous. He had lost his humanity. He was no longer a person. He was a problem to be managed. What if he seriously hurts or kills someone? So how did they manage this problem? They removed him from the village and the community. He was living among the tombs, caves or burial chambers carved out of the rock and the hillside. He had been driven away from his family, friends, community, village, everything. And to make sure that he didn't wander back home or back into town and possibly hurt someone, they had tried on numerous occasions to bind him, to tie him up, to chain him, anchor him to that unclean place. How many times had he been forcibly removed from the village and dragged back to the tombs? How many times had he been wrestled to the ground while others attempted to chain his hands and feet? And how many times had he watched them walk back down to their homes and families in the village, leaving him alone among the dead? Verse 3 tells us that the problem was no longer manageable. Their solutions were no longer working. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. No one could subdue him. Night and day he would cry out and cut himself with stones. In Ukraine, our family lived on the fourth floor of a nine-story Soviet apartment building. There were four entrances and around 150 apartments in our building. We could hear all our neighbors, and all our neighbors could hear us. The apartment directly above us contained a very dysfunctional family. 
Lots of arguments and fights that involved running, door slamming, screaming, throwing things, and actual physical violence. It usually started with the father coming home drunk at 2 or 3 in the morning, and Heather and I would lay awake in our bed praying. We didn't know what to do. There was nothing we could do. There was no one to call, so we prayed. They had an adult daughter that had mental and physical issues. For hours at a time, she would scream. At the top of her lungs, she would scream. And her screams were full of sadness, anger, anguish, and pain. And this went on for years. At first, it was extremely unsettling. Her cries would fill our apartment and our heads. There was nothing but her screams. And again, there was nothing that we could do for her. There was no one to call or intervene. They wouldn't even open up their door to us. So we prayed. When I read that night and day this man would cry out and cut himself with stones, I think of her and her cries. Sometimes we don't have a day one because everyone, possibly including ourselves, has lost hope in us and our situation. Lost hope that there could ever be a one day in our lives when things might be different. How can there be a day one without a one day, a hope, a dream, a desire for things to be different and changed for the better? When Jesus stepped out of the boat, he was immediately greeted by this tortured man. The man had actually seen Jesus while Jesus was still in the boat, and he had recognized him from afar. He ran up to Jesus and fell at his feet, shouting, What do you want with me, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this in response to Jesus' command, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. So let's pause for a moment and imagine that scene. Jesus was in the boat crossing the lake with his disciples. The night before they had been caught in what my translation calls a furious squall. Maybe a better, more wordy description would be that Jesus and his disciples had been caught in a storm so bad that it scared lifelong fishermen accustomed to the wind and the waves. It's not hard to scare me when I'm in a boat, but it's hard to scare these guys. Show the picture. That's what you get when you Google image grizzled fisherman. Somebody in the first service said my picture could be up there as well. But the disciples were scared. They woke up Jesus and asked him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They thought they were going to die. Jesus spoke to the wind and waves, Quiet, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed and were calm. How did his disciples respond? They went from scared to terrified, saying, Even the wind and the waves obey Jesus' command? So who is this? And that is the question that Mark asked throughout his gospel. Here's a story about Jesus. So who is this Jesus? It is posed here as a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question is a question asked in order to create a dramatic effect or to make a point rather than to get an answer. Mark isn't looking for the answer. He's making a point. Jesus is Lord over the wind and the waves, and he is the Son of God. The disciples and Jesus had just experienced all of that, and now, even before they stepped out of the boat, they saw a disheveled man shouting at the top of his lungs, running towards them from out of the tombs. How do you think they responded? How would you respond? Imagine for a moment how excited they probably were to be getting out of that boat finally, after the last night's storm. 
And now I'm guessing that some of them might have put a foot back in the boat. Others might have balled their fist. A couple of them might have tried to shield Jesus, you know, the way you do in the front seat when you come, you know, when you're trying to protect your child, you know, put their arm up or their bodies. And Jesus asked, what is your name? To which the man replied, Legion, for we are many. I love how the man's reply is paraphrased in the message. My name is Mob. I'm a rioting mob. So what do we learn about Jesus from this brief exchange? Number one, we learn that the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. They recognized him, and not only did they call him by name, but they also acknowledged him as the son of the most high God. Which makes me think of James 2.19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And as I mentioned, Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. I'm thinking about writing my own paraphrase. I'm going to start with this verse. Give me your feedback, see what you think. You believe that there is one God? Well, whoop-de-doo. Even the demons do. What do y'all think? Keep the day job? Some of y'all think, I'm not even sure I want him to keep his day job now. So number one, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. Number two, they also acknowledged that Jesus had absolute control over them and their situation. They begged Jesus not to send them out of the area. They were not on equal footing with Jesus. They could not bargain with Jesus. They had no leverage with Jesus. They could not negotiate with Jesus. He had and has complete dominion over all, including them. So they did the only thing they could do. They begged. They wanted to stay in the area where they had caused so much trouble, sorrow, harm, and evil. So let's finish reading the story. This is Mark 5, 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pet pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So now we see Jesus act, and then how people and pigs reacted to Jesus. Legion, this mob of demons, saw a herd of pigs and asked, begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. They wanted to stay in the area and keep tormenting the folks who lived there. And Jesus granted their request. What? And now we get an idea of how many demons were afflicting and tormenting this man because the demons went out of the man and entered and filled an entire herd of around 2,000 pigs. Can you imagine a demon-possessed herd of 2,000 pigs? 
How did the pigs react? They rushed down the bank into the lake and drowned. Not what the demons were expecting. They had hoped to stay in the region, tormenting those pigs, and through those pigs, terrorizing the inhabitants of the area. Seeing the herd of pigs rush into the lake and drown, the pig herders ran back to town and reported to the owners of the herd what had happened. Um, quick aside, in my opinion, this one person, one family, didn't own all these pigs. This was a community herd. Folks would take turns taking the herd out in the morning to forage. I actually had to look that up. Did y'all know pigs forage? I wasn't sure if pigs graze or forage. It turns out they forage. For many years, after Sunday morning service in Beardyansk, I would drive to the village of Panfilovka to lead a house church there. And along the way, I would stop in another village, Manulovka, to pick up three ladies who were members of that house church. One of the ladies named Yulia wasn't always a able to attend services. Why? Because she had a cow. All the folks in Manulovka who had cows would take turns taking the herd out to the fields to graze every day. Cows graze, pigs forage. So if Yulia's turn fell on a Sunday, then instead of joining us for worship, she would call me and tell me, don't worry, I'm out in the fields with the cows singing hymns. So the loss of those pigs would have been felt by many in the town. So the pig herders ran back to report what had happened. The townspeople, en masse, returned to see for themselves. What did they find? They found the man referred to as legion in his right mind and sitting with Jesus. And the Bible says they were afraid. The pig herders recounted the story to the crowd, how everything had happened. And the people responded by asking Jesus to leave. You ain't got to go home, Jesus. You just got to get out of here. This story reminds me of other stories in the Bible, but with different reactions to Jesus. The pig herders make me think of the shepherds watching over their flocks by night who are visited by a host of angels proclaiming Jesus' birth. The shepherds return home glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. While these pig herders went to town, lamenting the loss of the herd. And then the townspeople coming out after hearing the report from the pig herders to see for themselves what had happened somewhat parallels the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Except the people from the woman's town beg Jesus to stay in their town and teach them while the townspeople in today's story beg Jesus to leave. Similar events, similar encounters with Jesus. But how different our reactions can be. Faced with the same set of circumstances, one person clings to God and grows in their faith, while another blames God and hardens their heart towards him. But what about the pigs? What can we say about the pigs? The presence of the herd of pigs inclines many scholars to believe that these events happened in a Gentile region, not a Jewish one. But if it was in a Jewish region, area, then the Jews living in that area would have some explaining to do, wouldn't they, of why they had a herd of unclean animals. Financially, this was a huge blow to the townspeople. I looked this up in 2019. The average value of one hog or pig in the United States was $102. 
So 2,000 pigs is worth over $20,000. That's a lot of money then, a lot of money now. This was a huge loss to the town. Why doesn't Mark mention this economic loss? And another thing, why did Jesus grant the demon's request? Mark is silent on both counts. And I think if Mark was here today to defend his telling of the story, he would probably say to us, what are you talking about? Who cares about the pigs? You are totally missing the point of the story. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We focus on the wrong things. We focus on the less important and totally miss the really important. And sometimes we aren't asking the right questions. We get distracted or fixated on the wrong things, and we can't let them go. Mark's storytelling here is saying to us, don't get distracted by the pigs. This is a story about Jesus and his power to save the man. The townspeople didn't see it that way. They were either upset about the loss of money that the herd represented, or they were ungodly people scared of Jesus and the power he displayed, or maybe both. Either way, they sent Jesus packing. They didn't invite him to come and stay in their village. They asked Jesus to leave. So Jesus got back in his boat to leave. That's scary, isn't it? So if I tell Jesus to back off, leave me alone, if I tell him I don't want anything to do with you, get out of my life, stop bothering me, is this story telling me that he'll get back in his boat and do just that, sail right out of my life? No. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed asked to go with him, and Jesus replied, no. What? This story has so many what moments. Jesus granted a demon's request. What? Jesus casted demons into a herd of pigs. What? Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, and in response to that, the man's hometown asked Jesus to leave. What? And then finally, a man asked Jesus to follow him and become his disciple, and Jesus says no. What? Instead, Jesus said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This town had thoroughly rejected Jesus, begged him to leave their region and to leave them alone, and Jesus did. He got back in his boat, but he sent the man who he had healed as his witness to go back to his hometown and tell them all that the Lord had done for, them, for him so that they might hear, repent, and believe. So the story ends like this. The man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So last quick aside. So is Decapolis the name of his hometown? No. Polis is Greek for city, Deca is Greek for ten. So up in Minnesota, we have Minneapolis and St. Paul, and they're called what? Twin cities. Don't be afraid to answer. You know this. Up in East Tennessee, Upper East Tennessee to be exact, we have Johnson City, Bristol, and Elizabethan, which are also known as the Tri-Cities. And here we read about the ten cities, the Decapolis. Jesus told him to go back to his home and tell his family all that God had done for him. And he does that and more, going throughout the ten cities of his region and sharing what Jesus had done for him. To circle back to the begin, the man healed by Jesus brought hope 
to the inhabitants of the Decapolis. Hope that one day they might also be followers of Jesus. Without that hope, how could they ever have a day one of following Jesus? Maybe you felt for a while God calling you to be a witness in your neighborhood, your home, or your workplace. Maybe God is calling you to return home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And maybe your response has been, one day, Lord, one day I'll do that. One day I'll get around to it. I just got to find the right time, get up the nerve, maybe lay a little bit more groundwork before I do that. But one day, Lord, one day. And maybe we have to hope and pray that the folks that we love who are far away from Jesus will one day draw close to him. How can we hope that they'll have a day one of following Jesus if we are not praying for that one day to happen? Jesus gives hope to hopeless people. He gives it to people who reject him and send him packing. And very often we, his followers, are that hope. We are called to go and tell others how much he has done for us. Amen.